On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the latest discoveries in the science of hope and optimism, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. Colette Pichon Battle is a generational native of the Gulf Coast of Louisiana. She can trace her people back centuries and their belonging on that land with a remarkable intimacy and delight. I was stunned to learn as I prepared for this conversation that Louisiana alone holds 40% of the wetlands of the United States. The ebb and flow of the bayou was a background rhythm in Colette's childhood to every aspect of life. She did not ever imagine in that childhood that she would one day be known as a climate activist. And to be clear, that phrase doesn't begin to describe her vision and her gifts, her work and her callings. Indeed, to be with Colette and experience her brilliance of mind and spirit and action is to open up all the ways the words we use and the stories we tell about the transformation of the natural world that is upon us blunt us to the courage we're called to and the joy we must nurture as our primary energy and motivation. Colette Pichon Battle is a vivid embodiment, too, of the new forms societal shift is taking in our world, led by visionary pragmatists close to the ground, in particular places, persistently and lovingly learning and leading the way for us all. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Colette Pichon Battle is co executive director of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, which influences realms from equitable disaster recovery to global migration, from community economic development to climate justice and energy democracy. She founded that center in the wake of Hurricane Katrina of 2005, which she has described as a crack in the universe. Katrina was, on some level, a front edge of a transformation we are all experiencing in some way in the places we love and come from. The Great Northern Festival, which brought Colette and me together with a small audience in January 2022, is in fact another manifestation of this. A celebration of cold, creative winters, a signature season now in flux, through 10 days of programming towards love of place, participation, and resilience. I have spent... These last couple of days, just really learning about you, steeping in you, and it's just amazing to have you here. Thank you. And it's I feel like, an honor. Yeah, we have so much to learn from you. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I'm always interested in the religious or spiritual sensibility that shaped a childhood, and I'm so curious for you, because clearly Louisiana and the Bayou were part of that, and I just wonder how those things came together oh. in your in the early life that formed you. It's the question for me. Um, I come from a Creole community in South Louisiana, and so we're very Catholic. Catholic and big. That's big families that are highly ritualized. And, um, you know, to drive to church every Sunday, you have to go through bayous and bridges and water, and you look to see if there's an alligator on your way to church. You know, <laughs> church is under these big oak trees that have been there for hundreds of years. Those pieces of spirit were always together. Um, but, you're, you know, the, the 
the deeper part of spirit that's just really free is out in those bayous, under those trees. And these words that you learn, like magnificent and, and holy and sacred, you see them. You see them in front of you. Things are very old and very beautiful. Um, is it right that you were raised um, in the same house your mother was born in? It's true. And my grandfather built that house. And it was, but it was land that your family had been on. That's right. So my, so Creole people are, were free people of color and they could own land before many black folks could. Um, and so my family had been there before it was America, before it was the U.S. And the land that is in my family extends for a very long time. So my grandfather had, his family had a piece of property and that's where he built his his house and he had his 13 children and my mom was one of those and she was born in that house and I was raised in that house. So the connection to that place and that land is, it's not just our generations, it goes even further back. Um, something else that I loved when I heard you talking about was um, how you grew up, how did you say it? You, you grew up knowing how to pay attention for storms. And that the calm in the eye of the storm, which is not just a phrase, but a reality. It's a real thing. It's something that you knew how to hang out in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I actually have been thinking about storms looking at your, all the snow on the ground. Uh, so like, how do people, li- how, do, how do people enjoy this? How do people live in this? Um, and, and it is, if you calm down about it and you see there's a, Everyone's used to it. Everyone knows what to do. That's how hurricanes are for us. Mm -hmm. Well, they were. Um, When I was young, it was was a hurricane party, literally a party. All of your cousins, and remember, I come from that big Catholic family. (laughs) It's like 51 first cousins all in a house. (laughs) And all your aunts are cooking. You know, the power is going to go out, so that means we're going to be grilling. You know, all this stuff is going to, they're not going to waste food. So the free, the free, you got to get the food out the freezer and just, it's just a buffet. You're having a party and you're with all of your friends. And in any moments of, of fear, you're, you're with like 20 people who love you. And, and it just makes the whole experience very different Mm -hmm. because you're not alone, not knowing what's happening. You're with generations of people who know exactly what's going on and Mm -hmm. they know exactly when to be afraid and when. Right. And there are contained moments of fear. That's right. Of appropriate fear. That's right. It made me also think about how, so I grew up in Oklahoma, how we all, wherever we're from, we have the storms that we know, right? In Oklahoma, it was tornadoes. Mm -hmm. Exactly the same thing. Yes. There was this moment where it could kill you and you knew it. And you knew, but you knew how, right? But you knew what to do. Yes. And um, and in Minnesota, it's snowstorms, and in California, it's the form of a storm that is a fire. That's right. And of course, in all of those examples, um, it's not that known experience anymore. That's right. It's very different, and I think that's the part that scares me the most. Um, we're losing generations of people who know the anatomy of these things, mm-hmm. and we're getting new people into our space who have no clue what a hurricane is and the hurricanes that we know to describe are not the ones we're facing now. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, your life changed on August 29th, 2005 with hurricane Katrina and a couple questions about that. I mean, first of all, you weren't there. Were you, you were a lawyer in Washington, DC. I was a lawyer. You had gone away to school as we, as we do in this culture. And were you watching it like on TV? Yeah, I was, practicing. I was in the D.C. area and, you know, they just put the storm up on the television. And, you know, 
I can eye a hurricane the way people here can eye snowfall. Because yeah. I saw flurries today, and I was like, is it time to go? And then <laughs> no one seemed phased by the flurries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you can read a storm and you, um, you, know, you know how to kind of watch them. They do crazy things. And anyway, this storm was way too big. It, no storm was supposed to be that big. I'd never seen one that large. It took up almost the whole gulf. And I just remember thinking, like, where's my mom? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're bayou people. We don't run from storms. That's just not what we do. It's, I'm sure the Minnesotans don't run from the snow. Right. Um, and so we don't run from the storm. So I just remember my mom saying, like, I'm here, I'm fine. And I'm like, I get out of there. I don't even know why I thought that. That's not something I ever thought before. It was just too big. And my mom packed three days of clothes, and she went to my uncle's house, and we lost everything. We had uh, a very large tidal surge, um, almost 30 feet, coming off the ocean. And my entire community went under about 12 feet of water. And we were on high ground. That's where my grandfather's land is high ground. People would park their cars on we, every storm. We'd see random cars parked in our yard. And there's just you just knew a storm was coming because everybody would park their cars there because we were on high ground. But we went under. Everything went under. We lost everything. And That house your grandfather built? That same house. That same house. That same house on that land. And now the land is perpetually saturated because we're... The, the, the water is rising, the water table is rising, the lake is rising, everything, you know, the sea level rise is real. And for those of us who are very close to the sea, this is, we can see it, you know, the, the, the yard never gets dry. The trees are falling because the, the ground is saturated, you know. It's really, it's jarring to see because most people think you can't watch sea level rise, but it is very obvious in just the 16 years that I've been home, what's happening. Somewhere you said... Um it was a crack in the universe to come home and see the destruction of Hurricane Katrina. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. You know, the, the worst part, you, you land in New Orleans and everybody saw what happened to New Orleans. And there's a whole thing, there's a whole story to understand the difference between the failure of man-made levees versus the um, unbelievable power of a tidal surge off the ocean. They're not the same things. Mm-hmm. They, one caused the other, mm-hmm. but they weren't the same thing. So mm-hmm. the reality of the place where I lived wasn't failed levees. It was water off the ocean. Water churned up from the storm. So to go through New Orleans was one thing, right? You land, you drive through. Uh, that was That was hard to see. But what you were looking at were like flooded buildings, some things down, um, just the destruction was, was um, I guess I had seen it already. It was on TV. They, right. The TV didn't show the places around New Orleans. So driving across the bridge on Lake Pontchartrain, um, you had to go through a, a swamp, and everything, was, everything that was so green all of my life was brown and stinky. And it was just death. I never smelled death. Like that, it was everything died. The saltwater intrusion killed all the vegetation in the swamp that you have to drive through. And then you get to a place where I live where we have a lot of trees. We have these big old tall pine trees, and they were all down. My parish lost two thirds of its tree cover in that storm. It's a lot of it's a lot of trees to lose when you grow up. You know, as a kid, you would look at the sky and all you would see is trees. Yeah, and they were gone. Yeah, yeah, that. That feels, that hits home here, too, that yeah. image. So, you know, you you have become a climate activist. That's how you're, call, you're called. It's not a title that you ever would have anticipated or that you trained for. 
And I actually think that neither one of those words is really big enough. Mm. And I, I feel like what you what you get at and what you've just drawn us into is the fact that this is not a it's not a science story. That's right. Climate, climate is just this tiny piece of it, right? Yeah. And but it's a human story. It's a story about home. That's right. It's a story about belonging. It's about what we know and love and hold dear. Starts with love, with what we love and who we love yes. and culture. Yes. It doesn't start with an abstraction. That's right. And um, and so there are two critical moments that I kind of discovered, um, or at least that I'd like to dig into you with, in terms of the development of what I would say has become your calling. And the first is the story you, you tell about two years after Katrina, seeing those flood maps, yeah. seeing flood maps of this place you belong to yes. for the first time. And would you just tell us what you saw? Yeah, you know, um, there are all of these researchers who were looking at South Louisiana before Katrina. Many people concerned about sea level rise and all of these things for a very long time, but it wasn't common knowledge. It wasn't information brought to the communities. The universities knew it, but the communities didn't know. And uh, there was a, a highly regarded professor who put the maps on the wall and they played a time lapse of land loss. And they had us all like, you know, point where you are. And all of a sudden you see time lapse and you see your community is gonna, is going. And they tell you, this is going to happen no matter what. So even if we are successful in whatever it is we want to do next, we will lose these places. We will lose this land. We will lose, they didn't say communities, but, you know, we were all, several of us up at the map, just, you know, coming to that conclusion. I couldn't believe that what I saw was that this place that I hold so dear, that I had such a long memory of, not because I was old, but because all my life I had been told stories from a very long time ago. All of those stories are going to go. Yeah. All of the trees that we sat under are going to go. Everything that I knew to be like, you know, who I was, even describing just who I am and where I'm from was going to go. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be lost. And that was a moment where, you know, you, you sort of have this, it's, it's surreal, you don't, who, who can believe your land won't be there anymore? Most people still can't conceptually understand that. Especially for you, because you had such a, such a long history on the yes. land and, and much more knowledge of that history than most of us yes, do. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that land for people like me was tied to our freedom. Yeah. You know, that well, land, yeah. that, that, the land and the right to be there was tied to, um, it was a difference between being enslaved and not. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was a, it is a culture that has birthed a lot of people. And to lose that is, it felt in that moment that we would lose everything. Mm -hmm. Nobody would even know who we are. And my mom is this, my mom is an amazing woman who, fought for French to get back into the Louisiana schools. So, you know, um, just the culture has been a big part of our, our, um, our family life. So to think that people were fighting for these communities that nobody would ever really know about was hard. To, it is hard. And people ask me all the time, if you know your land is going to go, why are you still fighting? You know, my last name is Battle now, Krista. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's right. I don't know what they're expecting. You know, yeah. we're going down swinging if we're going. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's been a it's been a it's 
I still cry about it. I still think about it, you know. It's not something you understand one day and then move past. It's something you contemplate daily. I take drives now just to make sure I witness. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Colette Pichon-Battle of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. It's worth recalling that over 1,800 Gulf Coast residents lost their lives in Hurricane Katrina. Millions were forced to evacuate and became houseless. Countless numbers left or were relocated and never returned home. And the images that riveted the U.S. and the world in the immediate days after Katrina were of human beings, mostly black and brown, omitted from rescue operations and left for days in dangerous and desperate conditions. I will never forget the words spoken by a then FEMA director. We are seeing people we never knew existed. This was a story not just about a storm, but about our country. this uh, meeting you were invited to at the White House. What year was that? Oh, it was in the Obama administration. So many meetings at the White House. Yeah, um, okay, but with the FEMA? With, with oh, FEMA. yes, yes. And this is so stunning that at yes. some point this senior person... Yes, the head of FEMA. The head of FEMA, mm-hmm. not apologizing, not, ex- not really explaining, but, but in a moment of, of just leveling with you, yeah. said... Because I guess I'm sure the question was partly, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And he said, the disaster process in this country is designed for the middle class. That's right. That's right. Which you actually know, makes everything make sense. It, makes, it, it, it was the most honest answer I'd ever gotten. And it was a matter gotten. of design. That's right. That's right. And it, it made me understand why I was placed here in this calling. Right? I don't have this law degree for nothing. Mm-hmm. And... The laws, as they are written right now, are not meant for me, and they're not meant for my community, and they're not meant to help people, and they're not meant to save people, and they're not meant to do those things with the utmost humanity and dignity. They are meant to preserve a middle-class tax base, Mm -hmm. period. Almost every law that we have. That, you know, how does this affect the taxpayer? (laughs) It's it's the analysis that is used. What was happening was there was a conversation. It was a lot of people in that FEMA meeting. And it was like, this is what happened. This is what happened. It's terrible, terrible stories. Housing, education, Mm health care, everything. And the response from the head of FEMA was, I believe you. Yeah. Right. I believe that all of that happened because the laws are not written. It was also helping him understand what had happened. A hundred percent. I mean, because I think a lot of people, you know, there are bad people in this world, but mostly they're just people who are who don't know. And um, I think he leveled with me. I think he mm-hmm. was being honest. And I think it was a moment for me that I understood, well, I have a purpose here. We've got to change these laws You've got to change this society. It is the structures that we are living in that's the problem. I'm not talking about you liking me or me liking you anymore. We're now going to talk about does this work for the least of us, which goes back to that very Catholic upbringing, yeah. you know, that, 
you know, that's what I learned. That's who we're supposed to care about. Mm -hmm. That's who we're supposed to take the time to make things work for, you know. So the structures and the laws of our country do not work for the least of us. In fact, they create and marginalize people. They create vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And then we blame people for that vulnerability by saying, you know, something about their own individual acts. What we witnessed in Katrina was not a series of poor, poor choices by individuals. We witnessed the breakdown of a system or we witnessed a system working the way it was designed to work. It was designed, yeah. Yeah. There was, um, you've talked about um, when you came home from Washington and that people would say, Coco's home, Coco's home. (laughs) And that had a really particular meaning. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, my name is Coco, everyone. My name was actually Chocola. I don't know if you... Uh, well, there's some French uh, influence a, in that. I think that's a revelation here in this <laughs> yes. room for us. <laughs> my name, my name. I came out uh, a little chocolate baby amongst very fair-skinned people, <laughs> and so my name was Chocolat, yeah. and my nickname is Coco. And when I came home, what my community knew was that they had, we had 500 fish dinners from my undergrad. We had right. 500 more fish dinners from my law school. They got you to Kenyon College. They got me to Kenyon. Yeah. They, got, they, they bought all of my tickets to go. You know, I, yes, I got into college, but college is very expensive, and then you got to get there, and then you need books. And my community paid for all of that, you know, and I'm so grateful to have t- to come from that. But they knew that I was, I'm theirs, you know. And so when I came home, it was someone that we have helped to become educated can help us. Um, with with what we're going through right now. And so then I started reading Red Cross papers and FEMA, work, FEMA paperwork, and, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm a lawyer, and I can't understand this stuff. How can regular right. folks understand what they're signing? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were signing their life away. They were signing their property. They were signing, you know, to receive dollars that then got got them into lawsuits with the federal government because they didn't spend them the right way. Or, you know, no one's telling them what to do. They're just telling them to sign the paperwork. And this got to understanding, you know, what, it, what happens when you don't invest in your education system? What happens when the rest of the nation allows for the South's education system to go to those low levels? It means in disaster, people don't understand the paperwork that they're signing or the implications behind them. And oh, by the way, neither did the lawyer. <laughs> you know, like I had to yeah. like break that stuff down. And, really and that's so... It's so granular, right? That's not being able to read legal documents. I mean, it's not, it's not about complexity. It's about things that feel like they should be simple. Should be. Should, should be very be. simple. I mean, what was it? You were the third lawyer in, in four or five generations to come out of your community. That's right. And I was the first girl. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two were, well, were older men mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that I, I knew of, you know, but they're my, my older uncle's ages. And, yeah, my community was very proud of me. Mm-hmm. And I was proud. I didn't realize that that was a, you know, you don't really think about those things. Like, oh, I'll be the first girl. Um, you just think, um, I want to do my best and I want to represent my community in a really good way. Um, but I think being a girl, being a woman was actually quite helpful in this situation because it wasn't just lawyering skills that were needed. It was empathy and it was patience and it was um, the ability to be quiet and not take up space, you know, servitude. Like, you know, you know, I mean, I cleaned up a lot before we got to the paperwork. You know what I mean? I I held babies and 
cried with people before we got to the paperwork. And that's something I think um, being raised as a, a, a black Southern woman, you know, those are mm. things we get endowed with. And it was a, it was a necessary part of that process. Mm. What did you think you were going to law school for? <laughs> well, I had plans. Uh-huh. I was going to be secretary of state. That was, that was, where, right. that was where I was going to land. Yeah. I was going to be a prosecutor at the Hague against international war criminals. See, I had, <laughs> I had big dreams. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had a very sort of, um, I want to represent the United States on the global stage around right and around justice. Mm-hmm. I want to be in the world. I want to be in, the, in a global conversation about right and, and mm-hmm. hu- humanity. And I really projected all of that outward. And I have to tell you, there were, this, there were several moments, but many moments of, of studying international uh, studies and thinking about how all of this pertains to the third world and the developing world. But coming home post-Katrina, I said, this is everything I learned about international human rights, about human rights standards. It's right here, and it is right now. I would say you have stepped into what has become the 21st century dynamic that brings all of that together. And it is intimate and civilizational at once. And you're not Secretary of State, but you are... (laughs) You did found, and you, you're the co-executive director of this incredible institution called the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. And this is just, this is just a sliver of what you're doing. Um, uh, the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy co-chairs the National Water Equity and Climate, Climate Resilient Caucus with PolicyLink, serves on the steering committee of the Ocean Justice Forum. Or is this just you? Or is this you? <laughs> and this is you, not just this is you. And anchors the five-state multi-issue initiative Gulf South for a Green New Deal. You also lead the Red, Black, and Green New Deal, the National Climate Initiative for the Movement for Black Lives. And, you know, I, I said a minute ago, I don't think climate activists is... Those aren't big enough words. And you've also said climate change is not the problem. And But I think climate the words climate change are part of the problem yeah. because they dull us. And right there. So, so I would love to spend a few minutes, because you use language so powerfully. You um, And this is in the context of your speaking, but also in how the Gulf Coast Center kind of formulates. It's like you're creating a vocabulary mm-hmm. that I think opens up what is at stake and what this is really about. And I just want to ask you to kind of take us inside some of these. So one of them is equitable disaster recovery. You know, um, we in this country, we we all have like this starting point of um, our own struggle, right? Our own existence. And so equitable disaster recovery means you have to acknowledge the past in your action for the moment and for the future. Mm-hmm. This, this is about repair. It's mm-hmm. not just about response. And we in this country have a real problem with that part, right? Mm-hmm. Because blame for us is shameful, right? Responsibility is shameful. But we're all responsible. If we're maintaining this system, we are all responsible for the inequities, and therefore we are all responsible for solutions that are equitable. And it means we have to start at those places that we have created vulnerabilities in and then go from there. We have enough resources to help everybody. Right. This is about where you start.
After a short break, more with Colette Pichon Battle. On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we hold on to ancient wisdom traditions while applying them creatively in today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with Colette Pichon-Battle of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. She has been an extraordinary leader from her home state of Louisiana in facing the human and moral dimensions of the ecological transformation that is before all of the places we love. I was privileged to interview her in a live event in the old-fashioned flesh at MIA, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, as part of the 2022 Great Northern Festival. So I feel like you are you have a lot of, you know, expertise, but you also have gathered a lot of wisdom. And I just want to kind of give you back some of your words and have you, you know, take us again inside them. We must have the courage to admit we have taken too much. I say, I mean, it's hard. It's it's hard living in this country, and even the response to disaster or harm is to go purchase something. You know, that's we don't even know what we're doing. We're so uncon. We just do it unconsciously. We're so wealthy. Just go buy it. Just go take it. It's yours to take. Um, it takes a lot of courage to examine that, right? Because we would have to examine our comfort. We would have to examine the things we worked all our lives to get the, the, the standards. Mm. We have really harmful standards that are harming the planet, our standards. We are as a country, as a nation, as a people who love comfort and love what we love and love our freedom, we are at the tip of the, of the blame knife. And we are causing a lot of harm and we're not paying attention. We're thinking about climate impacts as something that's harming those poor people over there because they're poor or because they have a bad leader or, you know, but that's not what's happening. Mm -hmm. Our consumption is causing no, this because problem. They're unlucky. They're unlucky. Yeah. You know, if we if we if we believe in luck, then there's some responsibility that goes with that. Mm -hmm. If we're lucky enough to live in this country and to have what we have, then we don't just get to recycle and feel better about ourselves. It's time to show up at the hard places, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody else is waiting for us to admit that we are the engine of the harm. Mm -hmm. And so that takes courage. I mean, you know, who wants to admit that about themselves? You know, something you just did, mm. I think, is part of the move. Because to call for courage, yeah. right? Not just to say, we, we have to admit that we don't. That let's, so let's call that courage. That, that is what we're called to. Yeah. Yeah. It is courage. You know, it's... We don't like to look in the mirror. That stuff takes courage. You know, I, I fight with those things all the time. You know, like, what's the line between 
the blame that stops you from action mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. acknowledgement that catapults you to yeah. to do the right thing. Right. That's a you got to practice that. You know, you got to practice that one every day or else, you know, and, and, I, and you can't be mad at people because there's a journey, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know. I used to get very mad at people. That takes like, practice, too. Ooh, girl. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, yeah. the amount of patience it takes for middle class white folks to understand the plight of brown people in this country is just like, how much longer do you need me to sit here and be nice about this? Mm. <laughs> And I'm and I'm Southern, you know. We can wait. <laughs> we can we can go nice and slow for you, but like yeah. it's you know it's um at some point it feels like you're ignoring me. Mm -hmm. At some point mm -hmm. it feels like you're not listening to mm -hmm. me. And now that's just disrespectful, right? You know, which we don't do in the South. Right. Disrespect is a right. that's a line. Yeah. So um, you you know the courage is something to to practice and patience is too, but. We are facing a crisis that we have maybe seven years at most to make some corrections on. So we've all got to get to that a little quicker. Mm -hmm. I feel like you just walked into also something that really defines you in a quiet way. Is it that For you, there's a spiritual aspect to this existential challenge, and it feels to me like that has grown more and more important to you. For sure. I mean, you know, all of the lessons that can take you to really admit climate, to really, really admit that you understand what is happening to the planet, it will break your heart. If, if you don't cry deep, hard tears for the state of this planet and all of the people on it, you don't, under, you don't yet understand the problem. And so once you get to that place, the only thing that can bring you out of that kind of darkness is belief in something greater than yourself. And for me, it is that spiritual connection. For me, it is, you know, um, understanding a greater purpose. And, and then your job becomes less about passing a piece of legislation and more about making a better world. And so for me, this is absolutely spirit now. I mean... What do we have to lose? Well, we're going to lose everything. So, and my last name is Battle. We're going to lose everything. My last name is Battle. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to fight. I'm supposed to fight, but I'm supposed to fight with tools that build people up, not tools that take people down and take them out. Mm -hmm. And that's love, you know, that's patience. That's all of those things that they taught you in Sunday school. They were right, you know. <laughs> you know, whatever the faith tradition is, they those yeah. whittle down the same ones, you know, across the board. Love, patience, you know, care, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, that's it's spiritual now. It's this is a moral dilemma we're in. Mm -hmm. It's not a scientific one. Mm -hmm. This is not about greenhouse gas reduction. Mm -hmm. This is about do we value people equally, and if we do, we've got some recalibrating to do as a planet. Here's some other wisdom from you. This, this challenge requires us to recognize a power greater than ourselves and a life longer than the ones we will live. It requires us to believe in the things that we are privileged enough not to have to see. That's right. That was me being mad at folks who just... Um, <laughs> That's a really yeah. eloquent way of being mad. You know, I have to say. I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> um, 
I'm just, that was, that's, those are my words around us still sitting quietly about this thing. I, I can't believe that it is the U.S. government. It's our government. It's our representatives under every administration in these international talks that are stopping the conversation that says finance the work needed for the people who are feeling the impacts of climate. Finance that because you caused it. It's our country saying no. That to me is like, come on now. Like, we're better than that. Mm -hmm. This is lives we're talking about. This is mass migration. This is people's lives. This is heat deaths. This is fires. This is storm. Put everything into this. We're fighting over whether or not people should have the right to vote. Yeah. We're fighting right. over whether or not people should have the right to their bodies. That is child's play compared to what this climate crisis is. Where is the righteous indignation on this issue? And why can't we get past that? And it seems to me that you, that this spiritual power that you bring to this allows you to, it's part of how you, and we're like experiencing the fullness of this, you you see the issues, you see the trauma, you see the effect on our psyches and our spirits and on all kinds of people's psyches and spirits at different magnitude. And you say, I come from a people who are energized by joy. Gosh. And you are holding those things together mm -hmm. in how you fight yes. for all of us. Yeah, this is a country paralyzed by fear right now. And the only thing that can, that fear, you know, Yoda. <laughs> thought I'd quote Let's a great get one. the wisdom thought of I'd the quote a great one here. here. Okay. Yoda said, fear leads to anger. You know, love leads to joy. That's a Colette, Colette and Yoda. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the joy comes from love. Mm. You know, to combat this thing, to combat the oil industry's fear of losing profit. Mm -hmm. I have got to help to bring joy of the community's love of everything that they are. And that's the only thing that's going to fight that. Mm -hmm. It's who I am. I don't, I don't come from, I really, you know, I have an angry streak, but I don't come from angry people. <sighs> I am so grateful to have come from folks who who celebrate family during a hurricane, who, you know, every year for my birthday, my uncle, who was this wayward person in the world, he showed up to boil crawfish because that's like my favorite thing. <laughs> um, you know, I remember going to like all of my cousin's games for everything because we show up for each other. And these are the things that I've learned, not as a lawyer, but just as a human citizen. Mm. And this is what I bring to organizing. Every now and again, the law shows up, you know, but mostly it's the community building and the joy. Yeah, the there love. was this, Jane Fonda actually interviewed you for this <laughs> virtual thing. Um, and she was asking you about organizing in the pandemic. And you, you said, well, she said, how do you do that? And you said, I organize prayerfully. But you also said this beautiful thing. You said, organizing is about checking on people. That's right. Just That's checking right. in with how people are. How are you doing? Um, we need to wind down, but I don't want to do that before we 
um, note that here we are sitting in Minnesota in January, <laughs> and it's not your first time at this place on the Mississippi. That's right. Would you tell us a little bit about the Sacred Waters pilgrimage? Was that in, was that in the midst of the pandemic? It was in, in the midst of the pandemic. Right? So I, I kept getting messages from my grandfather and my dreams about the Mississippi River and a pilgrimage. I didn't know anything else. And um, in 2020, we did a seven-month pilgrimage down the Mississippi River from the headwaters in Minnesota all the way to the mouth in Louisiana. And the pilgrimage was just for black and native women and two-spirit folk. Mm -hmm. And we did ritual at every stop at every full moon. So it was only indigenous African language and indigenous Turtle Island languages that were spoken in ritual um, or ceremony. Uh, that was done. And some things you didn't get to see, right? Some ritual right. is not for everybody to see. Yeah. But the intention was done together. And the first step before every stop was to find indigenous people of the land where we wanted to stop and get permission. And then those indigenous women, many of them would come and join us and we would bring gifts from mm -hmm. our homes and they had to be natural gifts and then ceremony. And it's really beautiful. I mean, it was in the midst of covid we had, you know, all of our protocols in place, and then we let spirit do the rest, and it was um, very powerful. In addition to the ceremonies, we had these conversations about the river, and um, indigenous folks in Iowa were talking about industrial farming um, and how it's messing up the soil, and they met with the indigenous people in Louisiana who are at the bottom of the river where there's a dead zone and the fish can't live because of the runoff. And it turns out that the fertilizer and the pesticides are all fossil fuel based. So they're drilled and pulled up in Louisiana, refined in Cancer Alley, brought up to Minnesota and Iowa. Then they run off into the river and they create a dead zone where the fish can't live. And this is the story that the women told each other and they mm -hmm. cried. They cried for the river, and they asked for forgiveness. And in addition to reconnecting with the water, we took some time to address the tensions between black and indigenous people and apologize to each other for what being colonized did to both of us. And those were very, very strong and powerful conversations, acknowledgments that just hadn't happened. So that work now that requires black and native people to move together can mm. can move, can flow like that water a little better. It's that repair. That repair. We get nowhere without it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I kind of want to, I'd love to now spend another hour <laughs> hearing like what your people, your community, what you are learning because really, Hurricane Katrina was kind of on the front edge yes. that we're all on. Yes. And we don't have time to hear all about that. But I think the question I'd like to ask you, and I ask it for Minnesota, but I ask it for you know, people who would be listening anywhere, um, what have you learned about how we can accompany each other? Hmm. I think I've learned that even people who are who see the world differently from you, they love something. And if we take the time to share what we love with one another, we can see each other's humanity and we can feel each other's value. And if we can connect 
in a real way. That's what we need to accompany each other because some of what is going to be asked is that you just let me be, you know, as relocation and all of this stuff happens, some people are going to choose something other than what you would choose. And to accompany them is to just understand what they love and respect it. So I think, you know, let's take the time to connect through love and, and stick with each other as we practice our own liberation, our own liberated stance on this thing, mm. which will not always be the answer we want to hear, but it'll be someone practicing freedom. And that's the part we have to respect. If I ask you, um, this is a big question, but just today, just right this hour, like what is making you despair and what is bringing you hope? Mm. What is giving you hope? Um... I feel sadness around the inability to value the feminine mm -hmm. and the power of it and acknowledge that it is the other half of this circle. And if we do not respect it through women, but also through a care economy and through taking care of each other and, you know, these things that we have learned to devalue because we've put this masculine thing on high. Like, I feel sadness that we still don't see it. Even, even the feminist movement has something to learn about respecting the feminine, you know. I thought race was the biggest problem. And then I'm just watching this gender thing, and it's really sad. But I get hope. You know, I've been listening to some music I love listening to music, and I've been listening to some of the what's coming out of the next generation, and I have my critiques. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm officially like an old lady, and I'm like, hey, right. music. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Um, but uh, I was riding, listening to this song the other day, and I had a 19-year-old with me named Tyler, and I said, uh, I said, oh, check out this song I found. We turned it up. There was a beautiful sunrise over the, a sunset over Lake Pontchartrain. And it was just this beautiful music and sounds I hadn't heard put together before. And I said, you know, I got a lot of critiques about this generation, whatever y'all are. But y'all are very creative. Hmm. You, have a, you have a freedom with your creativity that, is, that can be beautiful. And so... We're going to need that level of creativity to get out of this thing. And I am hopeful that the next generation that has a lot of challenges also has enough creativity to, to get out of it, to get to the next level. And we'll accompany them, too. Okay. We'll be right there with them. Colette, I'm just really glad you're in the world and that you're a comrade in all this work that we all have had um, so thank you so much for coming here and for doing what you do. Thank you. And I, I can't tell you how glad I am when I had to leave my religious practice. I had your show on Sundays oh. to listen to. <laughs> Ashe, thank oh, you. Thank you.
Colette Pichon Battle is founder and co-executive director of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. Among her many activities, she serves on the board of the U.S. Climate Action Network and leads the Red, Black, and Green New Deal, the climate initiative of the Movement for Black Lives. You can learn more about her work at gcclp.org. Our conversation was part of the Great Northern Festival, a celebration of Minnesota's signature cold, creative winters. You can learn more at thegreatnorthernfestival.com. And special thanks this week to Mana Tahai with the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, also Kate Nordstrom, Natalie Roman, and Jothsna Harris with the Great Northern Festival. And also thanks to Mia, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, which hosted this conversation. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Loren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Check, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Rodrigo Tuma, Gautam Shrikashen, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Matt Martinez, and Amy Chatelaine. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.